High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. You must remember a kiss is just a kiss a cry Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is part 13 of our ongoing series, Erotic 90s. In our last episode, we talked about a People magazine cover story from April 1993 about a so-called trend of so-called difficult women in the spotlight. As Kim Basinger, one of the actresses lumped under this rubric, was quoted as saying in the story, you know what the term difficult means in Hollywood? Difficult means that I'm a woman and I can't be controlled. Last week, we also talked about a piece simultaneously run in Time magazine in which some women in Hollywood suggested that quote-unquote difficult women, on screen and off, were doing more harm than good for the cause, even if those movies made money. As producer Linda Opst put it, we've got a lot of women as bad guys. It's a reflection, I think, of men's fears about women. This is stated like it's a bad thing, but for historical purposes, I think it feels extremely valuable to have the fears of that moment 
in terms of gender roles and sexuality captured on screen. Today, we're going to talk about two films released in 1994 that feel like cries for help from a male populace totally discombobulated by their combined fear of and attraction to dominant women. One was a surprise hit, an indie film which originally went straight to HBO and then was given a theatrical release, turning its lead actress into a sensation. The other was an engineered blockbuster based on a best-selling novel and starring two extremely bankable actors who had become associated with representing the roiling gender divides of the time. Both of these movies put forth an image of women in the workplace as monsters who use their sexuality to destroy men. Both The Last Seduction, which debuted on HBO in the summer of 1994, and Disclosure, which had its theatrical release at Christmas 1994, just under two years after the Michael Crichton novel became a sensation, seemed to reflect a trend described by Tad Friend in the February 1994 issue of Esquire. Drew Barrymore was on the cover of the magazine, labeled the 21st Century Fox. But the theme of the issue was what Friend coined, Doomy feminism. This was somewhat different from slut feminism, the term coined three years earlier in Playboy to disparage Madonna. Madonna had essentially been accused of hiding feminism behind sluttishness. According to Tad Friend, the Doomy feminists were women who rejected the aspects of feminism that got in the way of their expression of sexuality. For years, Friend writes, radical feminists such as Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Dworkin have held sway, declaring sex bad and men worse. But now comes a generation of young women who have read the theory, thought about it, and rejected it. One of the women friend quotes is Bell Hooks, already in 1994, a legendary Black feminist and critic of white feminism. Friend offers up Hooks as an exemplar of what the Doomy feminists are demanding. As he quotes her as saying, If all we have to choose from is the limp dick or the super hard dick, we're in trouble. We need a versatile dick who admits that intercourse isn't all there is to sexuality, who can negotiate rough sex on Monday, eating pussy on Tuesday, and cuddling on Wednesday. Friend takes it from there. Quote, Sounds great, right? Right? I'm guessing there's an uneasy silence among all those versatile dicks out there. A suspicion that now that what they said they wanted is here, smart women who will discuss and do the nasty without thinking it nasty, they aren't ready. Besides, even some of the women who are trumpeting their sexual urges worry about being seen as hussies, doxies, strumpets, 
in stirring the deep muck of our ideas about sex, the doomy feminists are turning up a widespread fear of untrammeled female sexuality. The quote-unquote doomy feminist phenomenon is filled with contradictions that friend, on behalf of men everywhere, has trouble reconciling. More than once, he invokes Lorena Bobbitt, who had become notorious the previous summer when she enacted revenge on her brutish husband by cutting off his penis and tossing it in a field. The implication is, if we let women have control, aren't we running the risk that they will cut off our penises and throw them in a field? Both The Last Seduction and Disclosure could be considered dramatizations of that fear to very different ends. Join us, won't you, for part 13 of Erotic 90s. When we first see Linda Fiorentino's Bridget in The Last Seduction, she's prowling around the call center she manages like a gender-swapped parody of Glengarry Glen Ross. Come on, you eunuch. Zeke's closing his sucker six, seven times, and he's got twice as many sales as the rest of you bastards. Spend your Sunday here, too, if you don't take these bills from me. Bridget has convinced her husband, Clay, a medical student played by Bill Pullman, to sell a bunch of pharmaceutical cocaine. He pulls off the sale, just barely, and now they have a windfall that will let them live it up and pay off his loan shark. Except that while Clay is in the shower, Bridget skips town with all the cash. She ends up in a small town near Buffalo where, on the advice of her lawyer, she decides to hide out while serving Clay with divorce papers. There, her next mark comes to her. Played by future director Peter Berg, Mike is a local boy who has returned to his hometown with his tail between his legs after a brief marriage. In this shitty town's single bar, he is telling his friend all about how he can't wait to leave again. I cannot spend the rest of my life here. I, I know what's going to happen each and every day. So when do you leave? How long does it take to grow a new set of balls? And then Bridget pops into his life. Still wearing her business suit from work, she walks into this bar looking like a visitor from another planet a much more glamorous planet, and tries to get a drink. The bartender ignores her, but Mike is paying attention. Jesus Christ. Who's a girl got a suck around here to get a drink? <laughs> City trash, man. You don't think that? What do you see in there? It's maybe a new set of balls. Give me a Manhattan. Ray? Uh, a Manhattan for the lady, please. Sure, Mike. He buys her a drink, and then he does what he has to do to hold her attention. Could you leave? Please. Well, I haven't finished charming you yet. 
You haven't started. Give me a chance. Go find yourself a nice little cowgirl, make nice little cow babies, and leave me alone. I'm, uh, I'm hung like a horse. Think about it. Let's see. Excuse me? Mr. Ed, let's see. She goes on to unzip his pants in the middle of the bar to check the veracity of his boast. Bridget, who will soon be calling herself Wendy, has the haircut of Jean Tierney in Leave Her to Heaven. But in other ways, The Last Seduction has the aesthetics of the 1990s indie film that it is. The screenplay for The Last Seduction by Steve Baranchik takes everything that would go unspoken or coded in a 1940s film noir and turns it into direct dialogue. Wendy slash Bridget gets a job as a manager at the same insurance company where Mike works as an adjuster, and they continue to see each other, but she rejects his overtures for real intimacy. I'm having more and more trouble with this, Wendy. Don't worry, you'll get the hang of it. I mean, you're keeping me at arm's length all the time. I'm starting to feel like some kind of a... Sex object. Yes, exactly, a sex object. Live it up. Why, why don't you just stay over? I gotta get back. Well, then I could come over. That's mm. fine. My place, my space, Mike. Don't get sticky. What are you so scared of, huh? What are you so scared of? I don't know. I guess it's because I've been hurt before. I don't want to get close to anyone right now. You're different than the others, Mike. I feel like, no, maybe I could love you. I just, I don't want that to happen, really. Will that do? (sighs) Fucking doesn't have to be anything more than fucking. As this scene shows, Bridget slash Wendy knows exactly how to play her mark. And she also knows he'd rather be a mark than understand the truth of what's going on between them. She doesn't tell him she's still married, even after she does tell him that she's on the run from a detective who she knows was sent to find her by Clay. Clay isn't a total pushover. We see him slap her in their first scene together, hard, but he's not very bright. None of the men in this movie are. Or at least, they're easily disarmed and distracted by her seductive talents. For every man Wendy slash Bridget gets involved with, it proves to be their last time getting seduced. At the end of the film, she's responsible for the deaths of two men and the probable imprisonment of another. But she gets away with everything and walks away a rich woman. Not once throughout the film has Fiorentino revealed any genuine vulnerability or desire for anything other than sex or money. Throughout, men ask her things like, are you even human? I'm honestly not sure if it's a feature or a bug, but while it shows a lot of male frailty, 
The Last Seduction never clues us into its female protagonist's real humanity. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. netsuite.com remember. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. By the time The Last Seduction premiered on HBO in July 1994, there was a well-established subgenre of erotic thrillers being made to bypass theaters and go straight to cable or VHS. The Red Shoe Diaries movie was part of this trend, which exploded in 1992, when independent producers began looking for ways to cheaply capitalize off of interest in basic instinct before that movie was available on home video. Even Blockbuster loosened its policy against unrated films to make room on their shelves for the movies of Shannon Tweed, the most bankable star in what the industry called DTV, in which the actress and model was often naked from the waist up. The rental chain categorized this kind of fare as 17 plus, and it was hugely profitable if often forgettable. The Last Seduction was not meant to be filed in with tweed films like Illicit Dreams. Funded by a British television company called ITC Entertainment, The Last Seduction was programmed to premiere at the Berlin Film Festival. But before it could make that premiere, ITC sold the rights to HBO. Then, indie distributor October Films bought the theatrical rights. 
Because of this complicated release pattern, which had it premiering on TV before it played in U.S. movie theaters, even though it was already a hit in England and elsewhere, The Last Seduction was ineligible for Oscars, which became part of its promotional narrative. See the most exciting female performance in years, which the State Academy refuses to bend its rules for. Perhaps understanding that they were already late to the party, the American media rushed to embrace Linda Fiorentino as the indie version of a throwback bombshell star, like Sharon Stone for people who were mourning the recent death of Kurt Cobain. Vogue photographed her in a gold lame Anna Sui original. For a profile in Premier magazine, she was styled with the noir essentials of trench coat and lit cigarettes. The New York Times compared her to Barbara Stanwyck. Tad Friend, chronicler of the doomy feminists himself, wrote of her last seduction performance in Vogue, Fiorentino's mickle-mouthed aplomb instantly furthers the legacy of Lauren Bacall and of Gloria Steinem. Friend also consulted actor Chaz Palminteri, who, like Fiorentino, was in the midst of filming Jade, a film we will talk about more next week. Palminteri compared her performance in The Last Seduction to, quote, Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire or De Niro in Raging Bull. Now Linda has taken the femme fatale to a whole new level. Many female stars wouldn't take the risk to play that role because stars want to be loved. But after what Linda did, you will see women playing unforgivable characters, playing more like a man. Get the fuck over here. Do this, do that, do me. Now get out. Writers were eager to compile evidence that the last seduction had to some extent allowed her to play herself. Friend got some of that evidence from Fiorentino's sister, Terry, who said, she's so clear about sex and how it keeps her alive as a woman. If we felt like having sex when we were younger, we just did, whether or not a man had made the first move. Or as Fiorentino put it in an Esquire interview in 1995, My sister Terry and I would just go into a bar and say to some guy, I don't know your name. I don't care. Let's go. We couldn't remember which one of us fucked which one. We would share these men. We were like guys. It was all a game. It was all for fun. In one interview, Fiorentino acknowledged that in her real life, she was well-versed in her character's abilities to use a man's desires against him. If I see a glint in their eye, then I'll stay in that mode, feeding what they need to believe, she said. Let's call it the trap. That I'm aware I can do that makes me sad. Men are very simple. They just want to have sex. You want the other person to be as complex as you are, and he's not. You can see it in their eyes, the response to what they saw on film. It's fear. If I were ever with her, what would she do to me? Peter Berg, who played Mike in Last Seduction, said, I truly learned from working with her what it means to be treated as a sex object. The film's most talked about sex scene features his character pinned standing up to a chain link fence outside the bar 
by Wendy, who straddles him, her pencil skirt pushed up and her workaday pumps hooked into the fence. The actress played an active role in blocking this scene. As Berg recalled, we're all standing around, director John Dahl, myself, and Linda, trying to figure out what to do. And Linda sort of let us throw a few misogynistic suggestions around. And finally, she said, all right, shut up, Peter, get up against the fence. And she just crawled up there and started attacking me. As Linda remembered it, he said, make me look good. And I said, I'll make you look like you have the biggest cock on the face of the earth. Afterwards, to get off of him, I lifted myself up like two feet. Even in an age of so-called do-me feminism, no one seemed quite sure where to chart Fiorentino or the character she played. Was this image of take-no-prisoners, strong womanhood good for women in general? Was it a commentary on male fear of women or an indictment of feminism as emasculating? Were men allowed to find her and her character sexy? Or did that make them cucks? A lot of florid writing was produced trying to answer these questions. As Interview Magazine put it, America, at least white male America, is terrified by those of its daughters who turn out malignantly sexy. But it cannot get enough of them. According to an Esquire profile of Fiorentino, quote, They have always been with us, the femme fatales, each era calling forth its own succubi, dark ladies who slip the knife deep into the prevailing erotic angst. But Linda Fiorentino gave us a femme fatale perfectly tailored to this choked, constricted age. She nailed the current gender angst. Dressed in her designer suits, invincible behind her contempt and confidence, her daunting brains and lust and ambition, she was every corporate climber's nightmare. She was the spike heel through the glass ceiling, the dominatrix every broad with a corner office is assumed to be, a fiend who used men and then impaled them on their own illusions about women. Premier Magazine described the character as a high-heeled, brain-twisting, man-hating, triple-crossing psycho bitch who steals $700,000 from her husband and gets away with murder. Make that murders. Men get dumped, humped, and bumped off in this slick thriller, all by a woman who gets her way acting like a man. It's the kind of sexual aggression that makes the famous spread in basic instinct look pretty basic indeed. There's a lot of reactionary critical language here, i.e. man-hating psycho bitch, as well as the suggestion that Wendy slash Bridget isn't a real woman, but some kind of exception, feminine in body, but otherwise acting like a man. Of course, people said the same kind of thing about Sharon Stone, 
as a way of trying to make sense of a film in which she played a sexual aggressor who happened to desire both men and women. But interestingly, when talking about Fiorentino's character acting like a man, critics always seem to ignore or sidestep a plot twist in The Last Seduction, which adds layers to its ideas about gender. In the final act, Wendy discovers that the wife that Mike ran away from and refuses to talk about in detail is, in fact, a trans woman. He apparently fell for her and eloped without understanding that and then ran away from her when he learned the truth. In The Last Seduction's Denouement, Wendy, now revealed to be Bridget, mercilessly mocks Mike for not seeing his wife's maleness, adding transphobic insult to what Mike considers to be a disfiguring injury to his sense of manhood. When you watch The Last Seduction today, this plot twist and the way Fiorentino's character uses it makes her seem all the more brutal and monstrous. But in 1994, it seems like it was read as more evidence of her superiority and Mike's failure as a man. Whatever the intention was, in the reception of The Last Seduction, Fiorentino saw an advance in liberation as far as how bad it allowed a bad girl to be. Quote, It's funny because I never saw that character as a role model for little girls. But I've had women come up to me and say, I saw your movie and I've been walking around like a bitch ever since and I'm driving my boyfriend crazy. It makes me feel really strong and really great. Even in something like Thelma and Louise, where you have these two very strong characters, they have to die in the end. What's so special about The Last Seduction is that none of that happens. Had a Hollywood studio made that film instead of an independent, it would have been very different. She definitely wouldn't have gotten away with what she gets away with. Fiorentino wouldn't have been cast if Last Seduction had been a studio movie. She had made her screen debut in 1985, playing an older woman in a relationship with a high school wrestler in Vision Quest, which was the first film she ever auditioned for. But by the early 90s, she was considered a has-been in her early 30s, making a comeback after having squandered opportunities that had been offered her when she and an ex-boyfriend spent years trying and failing to make a movie about Andy Warhol and Edie Sedgwick. She then paid the price for it by doing time in what Tad Friend described as straight-to-video hell. She had been considered for the Gene Triplehorn part in Basic Instinct, but when she told Verhoeven she'd rather play the lead, he stood up, bent over, and said, But Linda, you're hanging over somebody and you're making love to them, and there would be nothing hanging down. Fiorentino later said, He didn't mean to insult me. It was funny. I thought, is this conversation about my tits? Because if it is, it's over. She had a reputation for being difficult. And before casting her, seduction director John Dahl asked her to answer for that reputation. He recalled that she answered, You guys hire me to play these sexy bitches, 
and you don't expect a little bit of that to rub off? If an actress speaks her mind, she is a bitch, she told friend. She did not stop speaking her mind, even as the last seduction revived her career prospects. She became the toast of the town in late 1994, winning the New York Critics Circle Prize for Best Actress. She still went on David Letterman's show that fall and accused Mark Canton, yes, the same Mark Canton who in our last episode was saying that studios should stop making R-rated films and that there was no woman in Hollywood who could be considered consistently bankable of having sexually harassed her when she starred in Vision Quest. She didn't seem to have a self-protective instinct. My friends, she said in one interview, think I'm the freak, but I'm not. I'm who they would be if they weren't so afraid. When she was shooting her next film, Jade, she told Esquire that she did want to play the game, to a point. I feel like things are on the right track career-wise, and now I want to reap as many benefits as possible. Because chances are, it's going to be a disaster soon. I've learned from experience. Fiorentino didn't get a chance to reap nearly as many benefits as some might have expected from the way she was written about post-last seduction. We will talk about what was next for her next week, but I wonder to what extent what she had to offer, particularly to those who appreciated her performance in Last Seduction and the blurring of the line between the character and the actress in real life, seemed to sour after the success of another film released at the end of 1994, in which a character styled almost identically to Fiorentino in Last Seduction attempts to use her sexuality to destroy men and fails. In that movie, the stakes were much lower, hardly life or death, but the morality was much more simplistic. And the threat represented by the brunette business babe, much easier to overcome. After the break, disclosure. In between Basic Instinct and Disclosure, Michael Douglas had starred in Falling Down, which we touched on a few episodes back, as the ultimate aggrieved white male of the early 90s. Then he went to Sierra Tucson, a rehab clinic, to undergo treatment for substance abuse. As he recalled, for me, somebody who had never done any therapy or counseling before, Sierra Tucson was brutal. Insert your, men would literally play characters who have sex with bisexual murderesses and go on rampages against every minority in Los Angeles before going to therapy. Joke here. He told Vanity Fair that his primary addiction had been to alcohol and that any gossip about other addictions was off the mark. Quote, I want to make this really clear. I want to be a plain about this, so listen. There was a lot of tabloid journalism about my supposed sex addiction. Bullshit. It's all bullshit. That was a good story, but not the issue for me. I mean, come on, I never pretended to be a saint, but give me a break. He refused to talk in detail about the problems in his own marriage, 
Although in the same story, his wife Deandra held little back. A few months after this story ran, Deandra would file for divorce. Douglas insisted that the real him had been conflated in the public imagination with the characters he played. It started with the guys I played in Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction. These characters were sexually driven. The media got this great handle from the film and wrote it. I can't believe people are so titillated by this made-up shit. In an interview published 10 years later, Paul Verhoeven mused that in his view, Douglas's relationship to his characters was sort of the other way around. Quote, Having lived through many problems in his own life with alcohol, womanizing, whatever, I think he knew all about these things, and they are all elements of film noir. The diabolical force of the woman and the man as victims. There is a lot of that stuff going on there. And I think that's something he likes, that kind of danger. His personal issues aside, Douglas had gone from being perceived as a creature of the 60s and 70s, a playmate of Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty, to embodying the twin poles of corporate masculinity in two hits of 1987, Fatal Attraction and Wall Street. Now, he seemed to be poised to represent the 90s man. Disclosure was the subject of the February 1995 Libby Gilman Waxner column in Premier Magazine. Libby is the sometimes pseudonym of Paul Rudnick, a playwright and the screenwriter of Adam's Family Values and In and Out. Libby is a fictional character through which Rudnick can refract Hollywood through the eyes of a middle-aged, middle-brow Jewish mom, a demographic that wasn't publishing a lot of professional film criticism in the days before the internet. Libby Gelman Waxner may be a work of satire, but her read of disclosure is astute. She calls Michael Douglas Hollywood's Bill Clinton, quote, with their forgiving spouses and full heads of hair, Bill and Michael are both weak-willed but well-intentioned, new men with the same old urges. The novel on which the film was based uses the concept of a man accusing a woman of workplace sexual harassment as a scaffolding on which to hang a discourse about the old versus the new, which airs, quote-unquote, both sides, but pretty much always comes down on the idea that what one character refers to as feminist bullshit has gone too far. In the ultimate battle of he said versus she said, she is revealed to be a liar who seduced him in order to get him fired so that she could blame him for a manufacturing problem caused by her own incompetence. Published in 1994, Disclosure was author Michael Crichton's first novel after the massive success of the film adaptation of his book, Jurassic Park. Two months after its pub date, with the book still one of the top 10 bestsellers in the country, Variety reported that Warner Brothers had paid $3.5 million for the film rights and had already cast Michael Douglas and Demi Moore and planned to start shooting just two months after that. Barry Levinson, 
father of Euphoria creator Sam Levinson would direct. Levinson had been nominated for two Oscars for Bugsy in 1992, but had followed that film with two major flops, Jimmy Hollywood and Toys. He joked that he was the right person to direct Disclosure because it was just like his breakout movie, Diner, quote, except it has older men hanging out in corporate offices, but they still don't understand women. Entertainment Weekly sent two reporters, one male and one female, to visit the Seattle location set that July. The running joke of this cover story is that Michael Douglas literally wines and dines the female reporter, Rebecca Asher Walsh, while the male reporter, Benjamin Svetsky, struggles to get substantive time with either star of the movie. Even Donald Sutherland complains to a publicist in earshot of reporter Svetsky that he needs to establish intimacy with a reporter and, quote, I think I have that with her and not with him. The unspoken irony is that these men feel more comfortable revealing themselves in situations that they can treat like a hetero date. It's the flip side of the male insecurity depicted in the movie, sparked by a man's submissive position to a hot woman in the workplace. Consider the different ways in which Douglas says the same thing to the two different reporters. I think there's a gender war going on, Douglas told Asher Walsh over oysters and Chardonnay. Everything is breaking down, and harassment is an issue one can identify with more clearly, but it's existed throughout time. We're not comfortable with each other, and we're acting out in lots of different ways. To the male reporter, Douglas takes a less gentle approach, ultimately insisting that women say they want equality, but they really want to be reminded of their relative weakness and inferiority. Quote, It goes back to men dragging women by their hair into the cave. It's just that now it's become this issue. I think guys are confused these days. I think they feel their role has been usurped. Who's the provider? Who's the nurturer? Who knows anymore? I mean, if we followed the rules, we'd all be these sensitive, upstanding, compassionate men, and no women would want us. Women want aggressive guys who lay it on the line. It's really confusing for men these days. Douglas's views of who men and women essentially are and what they essentially want and how they want to be seen color some of the choices made in adaptation. In the first scenes of both film and book, we meet Tom Sanders on a busy morning at home, where he has to take on the burden of taking care of the kids for his lawyer wife. Never mind the fact that Tom himself has a big morning at work. A mid-level manager at a Seattle tech company that's on the verge of a merger Tom is expecting to be promoted to vice president that day to oversee a spinoff of his division into a separate company. In the book, we have access to Tom's seething inner monologue. In the book, the wife doesn't even have to be in the office that day, and yet, Tom observes, she was not good at managing the routine at home. 
He's frustrated that the wife can't even manage to do what he considers to be the bare minimum of wife stuff. And author Crichton directly ties Tom having to help out at home to his position of weakness in the workplace. The movie adds a scene in which the wife drives him to the ferry station just in time for him to run and make the boat. She sends him off with a kiss and a thanks for this morning. And everyone on the ferry cheers as he runs on board, as though what he's being thanked for was morning sex, rather than just helping out a little bit with breakfast. Not unlike The Last Seduction, Disclosure says all the quiet parts aloud. On the ferry, Tom is trying to maintain a cell phone call while a downsized grump complains about how the world is changing. 28 years with IBM. Did I ever tell you what they told me? I was surplused. You ever hear that word? The hell's going on down there, Eddie? What? Oh, that's crazy. They wanted a euphemism. They should have said sodomize. They're not going to sell the Austin plant. That's just a rumor. It's a rumor floating around. You know, times like this. It's... You don't see it coming. You're just going right along, and then one day there's no room. Boom. No more room for you. Smaller, faster, cheaper, better. I don't want to mention any names. I'm on a cellular, okay? No names. I'm just telling you it's not true. It's a rumor. I was making 150 a year. Big money. Boom. It's probably what you make, huh? 150 Eddie, hang on just one sec here. Why don't you... Call Cindy, make an appointment. I'll see if I can help out, all right? Thanks, Eddie, they are not going to sell Austin, all right? I mean, I'm telling you they're not going to sell. If I'm telling you, who else are you going to believe? Cindy. Pretty name. <laughs> used to have fun with the girls. Nowadays, she probably wants your job. When Tom gets to work, where he's in charge of a department which is developing and manufacturing a new high-speed CD-ROM drive... He finds out that he didn't get the promotion to vice president that he was expecting. Instead, the job has been given to a woman who is being transferred to Seattle from Silicon Valley. Her name is Meredith, and she's played by Demi Moore. Tom knows Meredith. Ten years ago, before he was married, they used to date. In the book, Tom understands that he needs to at least outwardly maintain a calm facade about being literally topped by a woman he once knew intimately. But in the movie, Tom is played by Michael Douglas. That Vanity Fair story in which Douglas insisted he was an alcoholic and not a sex addict begins with a quote from Kirk Douglas in which he says of his son, Michael's closed doors give him mystery. Like Brando, Michael has an element of danger. He could erupt. The scene you're about to hear takes place after Tom finds out that Demi Moore's Meredith has been given the job instead of him. Douglas's character storms into a meeting of the staff he supervises, all men except for one semi-butch woman. You may recognize the voice of comedian Dennis Miller in his first film role. Meredith fucking Johnson, son of a bitch. 
Goddamn Garvin. What happened? I didn't get it. What? You're not the new VP? Nope. He announced it. With some kind of secret. Meanwhile, he's got her installed up there in the office. They're bouncing back and forth like it's a fucking Tonight Show. Who? Meredith Johnson. Who's Meredith Johnson? This isn't going to affect the spinoff. This is, is a it? technical division. She doesn't know the difference between a software and a cashmere sweater. Hey, come on now. What aren't you telling us? Hey, I might be out of a job, Lou, and how about that? Is that enough? You know what it's like out there? He did say something about the spinoff. They he? didn't tell me about me. You think they're going to tell me about the goddamn spinoff? This is the worst day of my life, all right? The worst day of Tom's life only gets worse. When Meredith invites him to her office at 6 p.m. to have a drink and discuss the manufacturing problems he's just been alerted to, he allows her to flirt with him. When her overtures start to make him uncomfortable, he says... It's different now. You're my boss. She asks him to rub her shoulders while he explains the manufacturing thing. And he does. Then he pulls out his cell phone and makes a phone call to Dennis Miller's character. And she comes up behind him and starts kissing him. This is one movie sex scene which actually works great for a podcast. Because throughout the action, they keep most of their clothes on, but have a lot to say. Disclosure is definitely rated R for language. In this clip, we're going to join them about two minutes into the action. She's been performing oral sex on him when he pulls her off of him. Nobody has to know. Nobody gets hurt. It's just a meeting between two colleagues. Just another dull day in the computer business. Mm-hmm. No. No. No, honey. No. No. Now he stops saying no and takes control throwing her down on some construction scaffolding. You want to get fucked, huh? Yeah, come on, Is do that it. what you want? You want to get fucked? Is that what you want? Mm-hmm. Just stay hard. This goes on for a while, almost a full minute of screen time. And then... Douglas catches a reflection of his face in a window. Oh, God, look at us. Come on, I want you inside me. Come on. No, 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 no. I can't do this. Put it in. I'm not going to do this. Come on, now. I'm not going to do this. Come on, now. No, no. You can't stop. No. You just stop. No. 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 You stick your dick in my mouth and then you get an attack of morality? This never happened, all right? Well, she never used to be this way. I have a family now. Oh, yeah, well, a family made you stupid. You take those two champagne bottles in your refrigerator and you go fuck them. 
son of a bitch. You get back here and finish what you started. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Get back here and you finish what you started or you're fucking dead. You hear me? You are fucking dead. If the question is, who are we supposed to root for here? The answer provided by the rest of the movie is him, obviously. The next day, she tells their boss that he sexually assaulted her. Rather than settle it quietly and accept a transfer to another city, he consults a sexual harassment lawyer and decides to make a counterclaim against her. When he tells his wife what's happening, she just doesn't get it. In the middle of this scene, unfortunately, an Asian nanny interrupts to complain about the noise. When do we all get to be on hard copy? I'd love to hear what you'd say if it happened to you. You know how many times this has happened to me. Wait a minute, you never said this You're ever so happened goddamn to narcissistic. Nothing ever happens until it happens to you. Well, if somebody did this to you, you should have said something well, about it. Well, women have always but... done, Tom. I deal with it. I do not make a federal case out of it. Now go in there tomorrow and work it out. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. I should just shut up and fuck her. I mean, what the hell? Just apologize. Apologize and get your job Apologize? Back and get what the shooter not sleeping. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute. I got a better idea. Why don't I just admit it? Why don't I be that guy, that evil white male you're all complaining about? I like it. Then I can fuck everybody. Mom, stop it. Hey, Chowman, come on down here. Well, you want to exercise my dominance. Scaring her. I'm getting a patriarchal urge. Tom, the children. Yeah, my children, right? My children that I provide for and protect. That they can come in here between me and my wife, move my family out, take my job, and take the family and the house that we have made. And I apologize to them, Susan. They call me a rapist and I apologize. Oh, come on, Susan, this is some kind of joke. Sexual harassment is about power. When did I have the power? When? They go into arbitration. The company is definitely on Meredith's side. And things seem to be going her way until Tom realizes that everything that happened between them was recorded on the answering machine of the person he had been calling on his cell phone before she attacked him. They play the tape at the harassment arbitration. The male voice you hear in the next clip is Meredith's lawyer, and then Tom's lawyer and Meredith have an exchange about consent. Young lady, the only thing this tape demonstrates is consensual sex between two adults. However, it may have appeared the morning after. Mr. Sanders' regret is not my client's harassment. Ms. Johnson, is that your position today? Yes, it is. Ms. Alvarez? Ms. Johnson, just so I'm clear on what today's story is, would you define for me consensual sex? Sex where both parties are willing participants. How many times did we hear Mr. Sanders say no on that tape? I don't know. I was too busy listening to my underwear being torn off. 31. 31 times. Doesn't no mean no? Sometimes no means that person wants to be overwhelmed, dominated. But we can't talk about that. The way we're supposed to have sex nowadays, we'd need the UN to supervise it. No means no. Isn't that what we tell women? Do men deserve less? Well, when he really wanted to stop, he didn't seem to have any problems doing it, did he? And that's when you got angry. 
Of course I got angry. So would anyone. Don't we tell women that they can stop at any point? Haven't you ever said no and meant yes, Mrs. Alvarez? Up until the moment of actual I mean, the penetration. The point is, he was willing. That tape doesn't change anything. The point is, you control the meeting. You set the time. You order the wine. You locked the door. You demanded service. And then you got angry when he didn't provide it. So you decided to get even to get rid of him with this trumped-up charge. Ms. Johnson, the only thing you have proven is that a woman in power can be every bit as abusive as a man. You want to put me on trial here? Let's at least be honest about what it's for. I am a sexually aggressive woman. I like it. Tom knew it, and you can't handle it. It is the same damn thing since the beginning of time. Veil it, hide it, lock it up, and throw away the key. We expect a woman to do a man's job, make a man's money, and then walk around with a parasol and lie down for a man to fuck her like it was still a hundred years ago? Well, no thank you. If Disclosure was really about this, that would be interesting. But Disclosure is not about the double bind a professionally successful, sexually aggressive woman might find herself in. In this movie, Meredith's sexual aggression is a false flag, part of a cover-up. The movie is not about a woman who pursues sex because she loves sex, nor is it about men who were scared off by her. It's about a woman using her sexuality to get ahead and to cover up her incompetence at work. It's a movie that suggests the only good woman in a workplace is one who leaves her sexuality at home who uses her power subtly and smartly behind the scenes and is inclusive and mothering rather than dominating. When Meredith is revealed to be a schemer and a fraud, she is replaced not by Tom or another man, but by an apparently postmenopausal female colleague who everyone agrees put in her dues and deserves the position. Disclosure doesn't say that women shouldn't have power in the workplace. It says that women who are sexually exciting shouldn't have power in the workplace, and that if they do get it, they probably don't deserve it. In an essay in the New York Times, Karen James suggested Disclosure may offer a delayed reckoning with Anita Hill's allegations of sexual harassment during Clarence Thomas's Supreme Court confirmation in 1991. Hill was not a perfect victim, and in fact, was discredited by many because she continued to work with Thomas even after the harassment became a problem because she felt it would be damaging to her career to leave. As James writes, she was ambitious as many women realized but few said at the time of the hearings, to admit that baldly would have been disastrous, tantamount to appearing before the country as a witchy woman. James adds, If the role reversal in disclosure is illuminating, part of what it brings to light is the danger of a woman in Anita Hill's position admitting her ambition. Certainly, Disclosure is playing on male frustration over the ways in which the concept of sexual harassment has changed the workplace. But to compare it to Anita Hill's very real experience is almost pointless, because the story of Disclosure, in the novel and in the film, is not about a genuine instance of sexual harassment. 
It's about a woman so ambitious and so evil that she uses sexual harassment as a contrivance to get what she wants in the workplace. There may have been instances in which female bosses actually harass their underlings, but as James points out, sexual harassment is a lot of things. It is seldom anyone's first choice as a professional ploy. Instead of finding drama in what James calls the confusion that surrounds so many real cases of sexual harassment, films like Disclosure, quote, allow audiences to vent their anger at the changing rules of power. They also allow audiences to fantasize that what they find threatening about attractive women with power can easily be vanquished, just as easily as Glenn Close's witch was exterminated in Fatal Attraction. Both movies conclude with Michael Douglas moving on with his life, as if this could never happen again, as if he will never again encounter a woman who threatens his status, his security, or his masculinity. Both movies say that attractive women don't belong in professional positions where they could pose that kind of a threat. Attractive women belong at home with the kids, and women in the workplace should be butch, sexless, and or old. And it's too much to ask of men to expect them to accept the muddling of those roles. Disclosure the movie actually declines to take an opportunity offered to it by the novel to spell this out through dialogue. In the novel, the Douglas character sends his kids and his wife, who in the book is openly bitchy, away for the week so that they won't be in his way while he deals with all of this. On the last page of the book, he picks the wife up at the airport and she tells him she's going to pull back from work so that she can spend more time at home. He says, that'd be nice, and then spots the Demi Moore character buying a plane ticket to fly out of his life. The witch gets on her broomstick and his wife is transformed from bitch to happy helpmate. In the film, the wife, played by Carolyn Goodall, is by her husband's side through the whole arbitration. The screenplay invents a scene between her and Tom's lawyer, played by Roma Mafia, which allows the both sidesism of the book to come out of the mouths of two women. So, how are you holding up? Are you married? Chandler, Hogue, and Alvarez. I married Chandler. You married your boss. Classic case of sexual harassment. He asked me out five times before I said yes. Today, if I had said no once, he would have been afraid to ask again. Tom tells me you're a lawyer. 10 years. You want to switch hats? Tell me what you're thinking. I don't look good in hats. You're afraid she might be telling the truth, aren't you? Yes. What he did, he did out of weakness. That hardly makes it better, does it? Look, I can't get in the middle of your relationship with your husband. But the fact of the matter is, she broke the law, and that's what makes the difference. Miss Alvarez, 48 hours ago, my husband's penis was in another woman's mouth. I don't think there's anything in the law that's going to help me deal with that. Disclosure was a fairly big hit. It made $83 million domestically. 
on the list of top 20 grossing films of 1994. It ranked higher than Ace Ventura Pet Detective, lower than Pulp Fiction. Demi Moore barely mentions this movie in her memoir. As we noted a couple of weeks back, she devotes many pages to Indecent Proposal, a movie which, as you know, I quite like, but which won the Razzie Award for Best Picture of 1993. The only significant thing Moore has to say in her book about disclosure is that it made a lot of money. And so when she was negotiating for her next film, she, quote, wanted to get paid accordingly. Her next movie was Striptease, for which her $12.5 million salary made her the highest paid actress to that point. If Demi Moore doesn't seem to have much to say about disclosure today, it's understandable. She gives it her all, but there's no way to make Meredith truly empathetic, even though the things she says about the double standards for women aren't wrong. Moore did a fascinating interview with Rolling Stone in 1995, in which she performed a few contortions to humanize her disclosure character. Quote, She's a sexually aggressive woman who doesn't apologize for it. And there's nothing wrong with that part of her. That's not the negative. I don't even think her ambition is the negative. And I think she's good at what she does, which is also different in the book. But she's dishonest, she's manipulative, and she's willing to dispense with people if they don't serve her. And those are the negatives. When I say in the end, I played the game the way you guys set it up and I'm being fired, it's the truth. So, the reporter asked, you're not worried that the portrayal demonizes women? Moore responded, no, because I think it's very human. But what do you mean demonize? You mean, is she like a devil woman? I think Meredith is just an opportunist in a way that's gender neutral. So, the reporter pressed, she's a role model? No, no, Moore clarified. She's a role model for what women shouldn't be. Of course, women shouldn't create fake sexual harassment scandals, especially as a ploy to get ahead in the workplace. But it didn't seem like there was much danger in actual working women not understanding that, given that in this way and others, disclosure throws a bone to paranoid men who would love to have proof of their suspicions that with more women, at higher levels in the workplace, surely some of them are for reasons other than merit. The bigger danger was that people would watch Disclosure and think, this is why sexy women can't be trusted, especially at work, or that they'd believe that a man in the Michael Douglas character's position had really been stripped of his power. In that same interview, Moore was asked if she believed that things were really getting harder for men. And she said, harder for them? I don't think so. Maybe because the rules are changing and they're having to shift their understanding. They think so, but really, what's more difficult? It can only be difficult if they're threatened by a woman who has some strength within herself. But if that's the case, then deal with it. It's sort of ridiculous. If you can't cope with something, go figure it out. Go do something about it. Disclosure did not convince the world that sexual harassment of men by women was a widespread problem. 
Entertainment Weekly polled 62 males leaving Los Angeles-era showings of the film and asked, if Demi Moore was their boss and came on to them, would they have sex with her or sue? The results overwhelmingly suggested that Michael Douglas's character had done the wrong thing. Quote, 47 men, including three who said they were gay, admitted they would go for it. Whatever social conversation the filmmakers were going for, Disclosure had trouble moving the discourse forward as long as the culture was stuck on the joke of Demi Moore could sexually harass me anytime. As I've been writing the last few episodes, I've been thinking a lot about that Callie Curry quote when she called out Sharon Stone as a sellout for quote-unquote spreading her legs in basic instinct. I don't know if Corey knew that Stone had said from the beginning that she hadn't intended to show her vagina on screen and had been tricked into that exposure by Verhoeven. It really doesn't matter to Corey and some other women who identified as feminists in the early 1990s. Anything that seemed powerful about Stone's character didn't really count because the power was accrued through conforming to male sexual desire. As she said it, sex isn't power. Money is power. That's a very firm binary. If the age-old question for feminism is, should women focus on fighting for equality in the bedroom or in the boardroom, obviously we need to do both, and we'll know we haven't achieved anything like real equality if we're still seeing it as an either-or. And how do you apply that binary to the two movies we've been talking about today, both of which are about women who use their sexuality to beat men at male games and male spaces, one of whom literally gets away with murder, while the other can't even get away with a little corporate malfeasance? To me, the last seduction feels subversive, and disclosure feels regressive. One is a revenge fantasy against stupid, failing upward men, albeit one soured by its heroine's cruelty and inhumanity. The other is a revenge fantasy against women who have made it more difficult for men to hang on to the power that they used to accrue by default. But it's easier to make those distinctions about the movies and the characters than it is about the actresses who played them. After The Last Seduction, Linda Fiorentino was seen for a short moment as a female Brando or De Niro, a woman who could play complicated, villainous characters without any concession to patriarchy. But as we'll see next week when we talk about Jade, the period when it seemed like Fiorentino would have a chance to erase the gender binary in acting was short-lived. Meanwhile, Demi Moore at this moment was really testing what money is power actually meant for a woman in Hollywood. Michael Douglas was paid $12 million to star in Disclosure. Demi Moore earned just $5 million. And yet, she was still derided in the press for having too much. As Rebecca Asher Walsh wrote in that Entertainment Weekly cover story, she appears to be one of those women who make life quite hard for the rest of us. She's got a brilliant career, a rich, famous, successful husband, three kids, 
and a body a 17-year-old would kill for. Moore, who grew up poor and as a movie star was criticized for working too hard and working out too hard and achieving too much, clearly couldn't control the way she was written about. But she was able to use the fact that Hollywood had grudgingly come around to acknowledge that she was a good investment to spread the wealth to other women. While Disclosure was in theaters, she was shooting Now and Then. And as the producer of that film, which was written by a woman, Moore hired a female director, a female editor, even a female gaffer. And when she would finally begin getting paid more than her male co-stars, those paychecks would come for films, striptease and G.I. Jane, that continued to explore what we expect of women and their bodies and ask questions about whether there is any possibility, to paraphrase disclosure, for women to compete in the game men created. Next week, in our final episode before a brief hiatus, we will talk about perhaps the ultimate exploration of that theme of this era, showgirls. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. <laughs> <laughs>